Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business news podcast from Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Tyler Orton. And I'm Haley Wooden. And Haley's going to be joining us a little bit later on on the BIV Tech Panel, which features Glue Technology Society CEO Linda Focus. We're going to be delving into the Americans' latest strike against Huawei, Amazon's interest in delivering food to your home, and efforts to stamp out online extremism. It should be a good discussion that we have there, Haley. Yeah, lots to talk about for sure. But before we get there, we're going to discuss Health Canada's newly proposed Build First rules destined to maybe change things with regards to craft cannabis producers. Tanalyst Labs CEO Dan Sutton joins the show a little later on to discuss Ottawa's new rules. But before we get there, a few events to tell you about. Cannabis 2.0 is May 22nd at the Shangri-La Hotel. And Talking Ride Sharing with Lyft is May 29th at the Van City Theatre. For more info on those events and more, visit BIV.com slash events. Now let's talk to Dan Sutton. Some maybe controversial new regulations regarding the cannabis industry are being introduced by the federal government. They had info sessions this last week, and maybe joining us today to offer us some more info into this, it's Dan Sutton, CEO of Tanalyst Labs. Dan, thanks for joining us on the show. Glad to be here. Okay, so Health Canada, apparently they want these aspiring licensed producers to actually build their facilities first instead of getting the license and then get into building things. Any concerns going forward for a lot of the smaller producers with this new idea? Sure. So for clarity, there's always been an investigation and licensing check at the facility. Uh, includes multimedia presentations these days. You got to give videos and and you know very very deep analysis on the viability and capacity for these firms to meet GPP standards, uh, QA requirements specific to cannabis, security requirements, and a diversity of other. High barriers to entry, there's no denying. Complex barriers to entry uh, that only highly sophisticated firms that also achieve high degrees of funding and high degrees of regulatory insight uh, are capable of delivering on. So in this instance, um, they, they have rejigged the license application process such that they will not be processing applications that do not have a facility built. Um, and that that final license similarly won't be able to be uh, obviously uh, delivered until that facility is built just the same way as it is today. Now, <clears throat> this obviously creates a new funding barrier and creates additional risk for new firms that want to enter the marketplace. Uh, however, I understand that Health Canada was dedicating about 70% of its active bandwidth to processing applications that ultimately didn't have a huge hope of being able to actually execute. Also important context that there is no other industry in Canada from dairy to pharmaceuticals that allows you to apply for a production license until uh, you've actually built and deployed your facility, deployed your capital and taken on this risk. So we know cannabis is uniquely uh, has a unique difficulty around early stage fundraising. Charter banks and traditional lending sources are not a great resource for small cannabis firms. And I think that's really where this com complex barrier to entry is concentrated. Well, one of the things that Health Canada is bringing up is that they need, and you touched on this, but they need to figure out how their resources should be deployed. Do you think that these changes here are going to help speed up the process overall and maybe address some of the supply issues that the country's been facing? 
Absolutely. So that will be a positive function of all of this is that firms of quality, firms with the capacity to actually get over the finish line will be able to be processed far more efficiently. I think that I probably have a contentious opinion on this sort of understanding where Health Canada is coming from, because in our process, it took about 18 months from our first pre-license inspection until the processing all went through for us to actually get a cultivation license. Uh, so I was really stuck in uh, a space of regulatory complexity and essentially bureaucratic overextension because there were so many low quality applications in the pipeline. Mm. And that's the thing is we've got a variety of different applicants that are saying, I've got this cool shell company that used to be a mining story and I want to be in the Health Canada queue. And they don't necessarily have the capacity to execute, but they're just throwing up a Hail Mary. Uh, so I think Health Canada is very frustrated by this and quality applicants should also be frustrated by this. Now, are there smaller quality applicants that may get pushed aside if they just don't have the capitalization behind them, though? Or does that automatically mean that maybe they aren't necessarily quality applicants? Well, it restructures the priority sequence of a new entrant into the microcultivation space. You need to get your business plan dialed to the point where you can secure financial resources before you then and go and deploy them on either existing facility upgrades or new facility design and construction. Uh, and in that way, it does add a degree of complexity, but more so because it changes the order in which entrepreneurial skills need to be developed. And ultimately, you've got a lot of micro applicants that are excellent at cultivating cannabis and identifying cannabis quality, genetics, all the things that make for a good brand offering, or at least the foundation of one. But they, one way or another, will have to become sophisticated in the financial arena. And if you're going to wait on that longer down your path of getting a license, you know that might have been a privilege that you uh, enjoyed. But if you want to be in the cannabis business today, you do have to have elite financial sophistication. And that does include the ability to raise capital. That's true of every entrepreneurial industry and true of the startup cultures, especially here in Vancouver and in Victoria. And so that's my my message to micros is, is go out and figure out fundraising. There's tons of resources. You can study startups left, right, and center all over the internet. And uh, it is a core competency for a successful cannabis entrepreneur. If you think about your own history, shepherding tantalists through all of these procedures, do you think you would have benefited from having these regulations as they're going into place now? Absolutely, we would have. Uh, that is an un unfortunate reality and everything from sort of vault licensing changes to security ad uh, adaptation does seem to negatively affect first movers to some degree. But we're glad that we have the sophistication that we have and we really did lead uh, with, you know, the ability to resource finances and resource capital spend so that we could then go and deploy a facility for Health Canada to, to inspect. So in a way, this is sort of a return to the very early days of the MMPR, uh, where there were not a lot of assurances given and even some assurances that were perhaps waffled on. But that was a former administration and a former time for Health Canada. Uh, but absolutely, if we had had more bandwidth of Health Canada focused on our application from beginning to end, it could have shortened it, you know, 30, 40%. So one of the arguments that Health Canada is making is that they want to speed up the process, they want to use resources better, and this could ultimately impact, say, the supply that we are having issues with right now. Is there low-hanging fruit with regards to addressing the supply issues right now, Dan? Are, are there any easy solutions you see out there? Or are we going to be facing these issues for maybe another year and a half, two years moving forward? 
So this is a pretty complex issue. Um, and supply, when we refer to supply constraints, it likely means that customers who wish to buy legal cannabis in Canada are having a tough time accessing it. That comes from a diversity of, of different factors, one of which is that we just don't have a lot of storefronts. Uh, and some you know, provinces might argue that, well, there's not enough cannabis to put in the storefronts. However, it seems as though more and more licenses continue to come out, more and more production continues to come online. And at least in terms of average quality or or budget-oriented cannabis, there's going to be an abundance of supply in the next sort of six to eight months. Now, from our perspective at Tamilus Labs, focusing on a more discerning user base with a bit of a differentiated quality, that supply uh, is continuing to be restricted, and I, I think it will be restricted long-term partly because there's just not a lot of production systems that are set up to deliver that kind of differentiated quality. And it's something that you need to bake into your business plan really from the first days. Um, so it will be really interesting to see how supplies diversify, but we can, we can look in our own backyard. There's probably 20, 30 acres of good quality cannabis greenhouse licensed and in production today in this in this in various scales of deployment they're not all not all of that capacity is licensed but as that capacity scales with proven operators that are already in this production system we're going to see quality bc bud all across the nation excellent dan always a pleasure thanks so much that's dan sutton ceo of tantalus labs stay with us we're going to talk technology next on the biv weekly tech panel And joining us today on the weekly BIV technology panel, it's Linda Focus, CEO of the Glue Technology Society. And I also have my colleague with us today, BIV reporter Haley Wooden. Linda, Haley, thanks, guys, for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. And I guess, Haley, you're used to being in kind of the driver's seat here, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, but, I'm a guest uh, today. That's okay. kind of fun. I like that. I like that. But guys, look, this Huawei story, it's continued to escalate between the United States and China. U.S. President Trump, he has just signed an executive order last week allowing the U.S. to block transactions involving information and communications technology that pose a quote-unquote unacceptable risk to national security. From your perspective, you know, the argument that Huawei is making, though, Linda, is that the U.S., well, good luck to you guys. You're going to fall behind. I, I think they're making this argument, you know, to sound... I guess maybe tough isn't the right word, but they want to sound dominant here. But do you think there is a risk to the United States of falling behind the whole 5G race if they're pursuing these sorts of tactics? Yes, there yeah. is a risk. Ericsson is the dominant uh, provider of tech for the 5G network in the U.S. And word on the street is they're about two years behind. So is this uh, a long-term can we find a long-term solution to this problem? Can Ericsson work faster? Can Nokia or other companies provide supplemental technology? Maybe, but there's no doubt about it. America's falling behind because of this. And Haley, from your perspective, though, I mean, do you think that the fact that Huawei is kind of a non-factor in the U.S. market, though, they, they really aren't big in the United States, do you think that maybe some of this is being lost on maybe the consumers not really realizing what the next generation of mobility is going to be like anyways. I'm just wondering if there's kind of like a, a split between perceptions and then maybe reality on the ground. 
For sure. I think we hear a lot from companies who maybe understand the implications of this. But even to explain what 5G is, you're looking out however many years into the future. It all sounds very futuristic that we have autonomous vehicle networks roaming the streets. We can understand that as an idea, but I don't think we really understand how much time it takes, how much investment it takes, and what it might mean to fall behind if we don't allow a company like Huawei in. Yeah, and people are you know pretty good at looking at streaming speeds or speeds of their daily use of technology. You know, 4G blew up texting and sharing photos. And when we say to people that 5G is going to let you immediately see any video you want with no lag, no streaming lag at all, that might get people excited. But you're right. There's no way they understand. How can we understand the technical complications of creating this, this network that is going to take us into the next, what experts are saying, 100 years of communication? This is a critical infrastructure piece for us going forward. And Canada, by the way, is on this they're in trouble here, right? The U.S. is saying, and Canada, hey, by the way, your connections over to Huawei aren't going to sit well with us if you don't sort that out. So think about it, because, you know, we have Australia saying no to Huawei. We have the United States saying no to Huawei. Canada and the U.K. are both on the fence. And the reason I bring up these countries and New Zealand is saying no to Huawei as well is because we were part of the the Five Eyes Alliance. And the United Mm -hmm. States is, I, I think, hinting at the fact, well, Canada, if you move forward with this infrastructure, you're going to be shut down from a lot of this intelligence sharing moving forward. The question I, I, I pose to a lot of people, I'm just curious about it. Maybe I'll, I'll throw it back both to you guys. But would you feel comfortable if Huawei infrastructure was deeply ingrained into Canadian telecommunications uh, technology moving forward, just based on the arguments that we are hearing that maybe they could be compromised by not necessarily Huawei itself, but by Beijing pushing forward, um, you know, demands to share information. I, this might be a controversial position. I am concerned that we're going to have one provider uh, on the deep inside portions of these networks that can not just, this isn't like Google looking at your Gmails. This is like uh, a company looking at absolutely everything that's being potentially looking at everything that's being transported over this network. That's that's everything. That's state secrets. That's corporate secrets. That's our communications. That's everything. So, so yes, this is an encrypted network, of course, but we're talking about the people who are creating it. So how do we ensure that we have um, confidence and trust in that relationship when it's written into the law of China that if the Chinese government asks for some of that data, Huawei's got to hand it over. Mm-hmm. Huawei says that's unlikely that would happen. I'm not sure I'm comfortable with unlikely. I want a, a firm line there. So I feel that this is a totally safe, confidential, encrypted, secure network. Are you okay with unlikely, Haley? It's a good question. I would say I also have concerns. I share those concerns, Linda. But just to be a bit contrarian too, there have been instances of American companies handing over data to American authorities. And I sometimes wonder whether a lot of the fear and concern comes from the fact that it's China. What if it were an American company? Would we have concerns? It's different when it comes to how companies operate in China, of course. Yeah. And this whole data piece, how are we going to deal? We talk about this a lot because it's such a pressing issue. How are we going to deal with with what data can be handed over by whom. But this this potential network just takes it, this is the infrastructure of this technology. So it's really beyond snooping and hacking and breaking into. This is an absolute glance over to see what the world is thinking, doing, and building. Yeah. And we want the person controlling that, the company controlling that, to have everyone's best interests at heart. And their best interests right now are, are what the uh, PRC wants, right? So... 
Well, speaking of the companies that control everything, let's talk a little bit about Amazon here. They are leading a $575 million U.S. investment into a food delivery service, Deliveroo. Uh, reasons for rivals to be worried because, Linda, every time Amazon announces we're getting to this business or that business, well, share prices fall for whatever the leading brand or company is within that market. Yeah, so concerns for their competitors, for sure. Even Walmart, concern for Walmart here. I think Amazon's uh, diving into the delivery investment to figure out this uh, food delivery piece. How are we going to get food, perishable goods, to the doors of consumers using a distributed network in an affordable way? They failed at this before. They tried with Amazon restaurants. They couldn't do it in Seattle. They launched it in a crazy world. They launched it in London as well to see if they could compete with delivery and um, and. Uh, Uber Eats, they failed there. They tried to buy Deliveroo. That didn't work. So, okay, fine. We'll give you some money. And that's how we're going to get Amazon's going to get this inside look at this service. And it's a critical piece for them. If groceries is part of their strategic going forward plan, which it is, they need to figure out how to get me my lettuce without it being wilted by the time it hits my door. Yeah, you're not a much fan of wilted lettuce, uh, Haley. I, <laughs> no, I know I'm not. Yeah, no. <laughs> but I was also thinking about because uh, it's a very different delivery infrastructure that they've established for, say, you know, goods that go to your home versus, as you say, the stuff that is easily perishable. So, what do you think about the insights that they can gather from this particular strategic investment moving forward, Haley? Oh, I think it's huge. I was reading up on Deliveroo, and they have something called Deliveroo Editions which are these dark kitchens where mm. if you don't even want a retail storefront, they can use their data to find out, okay, there's not enough kitchens in this area, but a lot of demand. And they can get companies to come in based on cuisine preferences and to use these shared kitchens and then provide food without ever selling directly to consumer only through the app. Like, I mean, with Amazon investing in this, I think it's all going to be about data and it's, it's potentially going to reshape how we consume food and how we get food delivered to us. Yeah. And it may be we're moving towards a world where going to a restaurant to eat is kind of a quaint, old-fashioned thing. Yeah. I don't know. I, I hope not. <laughs> I, I like going to restaurants, uh, you know, just getting out of the house. It's just kind of a nice experience, but maybe I'm just a old-fashioned We don't want person. to eat from styrofoam all the time. No, right? no. But to that point, though, UBS put out a report a couple of years ago talking about the death of kitchens, but not restaurants, kitchens in your home. Yeah. So you go out to eat if you want that experience or you order in. I'll you tell you, my son's at UBC, as I've said a hundred times, but he's out there and during the study crunch times, you pull up to one of the dorm spaces and all you see are these ratty old 1990s cars pulling up, guy hopping out of the driver's seat with a bag from Uber Eats or a bag from Dorm dash and they're handing it to the to the students coming out of the study zones and it's just this revolving door of these cars so these students are using this all the time and their kitchens and their stoves are like these little pieces of storage basically right yeah. they don't use them at all I, I think if anyone's hurting on campus it must be the uh, 7-eleven outlets that uh, used to dominate <laughs> there so um but last week canada signed on to the christchurch call for those who aren't familiar this is that commitment to stamping out online extremism. It's uh, stemming from the attack uh, in New Zealand uh, a few months back. And I'm wondering about from a practical perspective, because tech companies are actually making commitments to this, committing to, say, more transparent methods of preventing uploads, maybe even redirecting people away from s some of this sort of extreme videos, content, etc., is this a look it's something aspirational of course how practical do you think this is going to be uh moving forward linda i think it's it's a great first step 
And we need to start talking about how we're going to regulate these environments that are social media environments that are doing serious damage to our societies, our communities, and our democracy. Um, but what we're talking about is asking a company like Facebook to pull back the veil and allow regulators to see a part of what they're doing. And Facebook has consistently said, we're a platform, not a publisher. This isn't our problem. Um, we're not going to show you anything. They've also consistently, the top two people at Facebook anyway, Zuckerberg and Sandberg, have not really admitted any blame in this process. And then the third piece to that is what we're saying if we're going to regulate them is we're asking them to pull back on their ad revenue effectively. We're, we're asking you, Facebook, to limit users time, user times on your site because conspiracy theories, bad news, catastrophic, catastrophic events, those engage users on the site. Those uh, Facebook groups they're hanging out in, that's lengthening user time on the site. And that's all increasing ad revenues for Facebook. So is Facebook going to take a, a bottom line hit and run afoul of Wall Street to protect user privacy and the rights of all of our, of our citizens and the 2.2 billion citizens on its platform? I don't think so, because I don't think they're really taking any ownership or blame for their part in all of that. So then, Haley, do you think then it's time for the government to simply step in? If we can't get these private enterprises to really step up to the plate and stamp out some very dangerous stuff, though, I, I don't know what other you know recourse there is than other other than getting the government involved. Exactly. I think back to, of course, the Christchurch massacre and how footage is online for 17 minutes with oh. all these platforms scrambling to figure out how to pull it down. Meanwhile, it's being shared hundreds of thousands, if not millions of times. The connectivity that we have has kind of far surpassed, it seems, the protocols and controls that are in place at these companies. They, by law, are required to not facilitate any kind of terrorist activity or anything like that. In their terms of use, they ask users to agree to that. But I think there's a level of accountability, a duty of care, it's being called in certain countries, that these platforms need to own up to. They, something needs to be done. Well, I don't know who it's going to be if it's not government stepping in. Yeah, and we've regulated, not we, the government's regulated really complicated industries, healthcare, the automotive industry, those have been regulated successfully, and they have way more moving parts than Facebook. Facebook's essentially, it's not all that complicated what they're doing. It's deep, and it's growing, and it's impressive. But this can be regulated. We, we've, we've, we've tackled harder nuts than this one to regulate. So I believe it can be done, but I don't think um, it's going to come from any, any uh, help from the Facebook, Twitter side of the world. Well, we'll leave it there. And for now, Linda, I want to thank you for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. And Haley, you too. It's great. To, I'll see you back at our desks. Uh, in <laughs> Sounds <laughs> good. Yeah. Sounds good. That's Linda Fawkes. She is CEO of Glue Technology Society and BIV reporter Haley Wooden. That's it for today. We'll be back tomorrow. You can find our archives on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Share with your friends. It's going to help us reach more people. For now, I'm Tyler Orton. Thanks for listening. 